to this special edition of The Foreign Desk with Lisa Daftari. Tonight, we have once again brought together our impressive power panel of experts to help us navigate through all the speculation about what the death of the nuclear commander, Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, will mean to the future of relations with Iran's regime. And also tonight, reports of Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei transferring power to his son. Should we expect any changes as he steps down? And of course, we will talk about what all these foreign policy and national security developments mean for a Biden administration. We welcome back our esteemed guests. I want to welcome Dr. Walid Ferris, professor, author, political commentator. He worked on both the Romney and Trump presidential campaigns. He is a Fox News contributor and the author of many, many books, the latest one called The Choice, uh, comparing the foreign policies of Trump and Obama and Biden. Uh, and of course, Mr. Bijan Kian, a twice confirmed advisor to the White House under three consecutive administrations, reporting directly to Presidents Bush and Obama, and serving as the deputy lead on President Trump's landing team for the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, an Ellis Island Medal of Honor recipient, globally recognized expert on the economy and national security. Welcome once again, gentlemen, to the show. Thank you so much for having us. Let's let's dive right in because I know we're going to run out of time either way. Uh, when we decided to do the second foreign policy panel, uh, we wanted to discuss the implications of the death of Mohsen Fakhrizadeh. Obviously, a lot of speculation as to who did this, what does it mean, uh, how will retaliation look, um, will Joe Biden be able to cozy up to the Iranian regime now that we've done this, um, you know. Ms. McKeon, I want to start with you. Um, first, there are so many reports whirling around as to who did this. Who do you think did this? Um, you know, was it the Israelis? There are even speculations as to that that it was the Iranian regime because this guy was a, was a you know, um, full of, of important and very sensitive information and he knew too much or there were security breaches, what have you. What happened in your mind? Well, Lisa, I think the easiest thing to do is to go for the popular rumor. And uh, I don't do that because that's too easy. That's too easy. And plus, there are many, many other very important factors to consider as to, uh, uh, you know, what really happened. So the only fact that we have right now before us is that Mohsen Patrizadeh, a brigadier general in the IRGC, and... Uh, in some ways, uh, uh, with a degree in science, I'm not sure if you could say a distinguished nuclear scientist and all of that stuff. I won't do that. Uh, he was assassinated. So that's the only fact we have. I mean, with all the pieces to the puzzle here, uh, this was not an accident. So we could say with certainty an assassination took place. Now, who did it? I think that question needs to be parked for a minute. Because uh, in the business of intelligence, uh, uh, vulnerabilities exist in various areas. In systems, uh, you know, uh, being porous, uh, where information can fly out uh, out of control, or it could be penetrated or influenced or changed, that's a systemic issue. But part of that systemic issue deals with people. And in that line, experts call that the insider threat. Now, insider threat, is uh, really nothing really so strange. Uh, it happens even without external factors in real life. You know, people unfortunately develop habits that makes them dependent on things that require money. They become vulnerable. They become corruptible. Those who may benefit from exploiting those individuals have a much easier time exploiting them. And uh, yeah, people uh, find ways to betray their their benefactors in their their country in a many many different ways. Islamic Republic has layers of insider threat upon layers of insider threat built on over the past forty two years that goes beyond that natural life event that changes people to be vulnerable or corruptible. And these vulnerabilities can be categorized in a number of specific areas. One would be the irregularity of equal treatment for the armed forces. They're not treated the same. Some generals uh, 
like uh, Fafrizade have three cars uh, with uh, bodyguards following them and uh, more than that. You know, their family gets to uh, limousines to get them to go shopping and things like that. And then there are generals who have to catch the bus to go home late at night. So there's an inequality that creates a dissatisfaction inside the ranks of especially military and security apparatus of Islamic Republic that cannot be ignored. That porousness of the system relating to people being unhappy is a cause of inside the threat, known and verified cause in many cases. The other layer is the competition, the power struggle that exists in Iran today. You just mentioned about how many sun may be taking over. Uh, you know, that's just one part of the conflict. You know, today the head of judiciary was angling for power, may get it, may not get it. Uh, the lead, supreme leader's son uh, believes that he controls the uh, security apparatus and he's deserving of the power. There are many, the Larijani family, the Khamenei family, the Shabhani family, and on and on to the next layers of what is going on in power struggle. And, you know, I cannot rule that out. I cannot see conflict of that nature and that degree of vulnerability in the inside the threat and just say, no, you know, Israel did it or America did it and close the book and go away. I can't do that because, because let's say somebody from outside wanted to do this plan and execute it. They couldn't do it without the insider information. Right. You know, look at the coordination, look at the every single detail all the way to making sure the helicopter could not land near the place of the accident. And, and of course, you know, you hear the Islamic Republic immediately presenting like five or six different versions of how this happened. Why are they doing that? To dilute the story. I mean, you're a journalist, you know how, you know how a story gets diluted when five versions of it is put out, then none of the versions have any credibility. And that's what they're hoping to do. It's all controlled in my view, and it cannot be, at least, you know, when it comes out of the Islamic Republic. So uh, we cannot ignore these other factors that are present now. Were they the cause? I mean, the causality is a difficult thing to prove here because we don't have all the facts, but we can't ignore all the other factors and just say, who did it? Right. Uh, if I were to answer that question, I would be, I would be saying, given the factors present, given the degree of necessary coordination in operations and planning, I would say Islamic Republic did it. Uh, because even if outsiders benefited from that, uh, still, that's just a coincidence and you know alignment of uh, efforts. The problem is the vulnerability of the intelligence system in the Islamic Republic. It's like Swiss cheese. This is not the first time. There's a pattern, there's a trend. Year after year after year, they have failed. So they they need to worry. I don't think they sleep easy at nights these days because mm -hmm. nobody is safe this way. Right. Um, and I'll get back to that with regards to their vulnerability and the fact that they still haven't avenged the death of Qasim Soleimani. And now you have two big hits in one calendar year. It's, it's, it's a tremendous hit. Um, Dr. Ferris, there's no one who can canvas this region better than you can. Uh, give us, you know, what? What do you think was, what was the calculation behind this hit? And, you know, you and I have always talked about timing, timing, timing. Why would they do this now? Regardless, if we're talking about the Israelis pulling the puppet strings, finding that vulnerability on the ground. But regardless, why was this taken out now, weeks before Biden goes into office? Is, are there a bunch of Mossad agents sitting in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv or a cafe somewhere in the world and saying, oh my God, we have all this intelligence and uh, only a few weeks to carry it out? I mean, what do you think, I mean, what are the calculations based on timing? It is a fascinating issue. It's almost a James Bond thriller that we're dealing with, and all the uh, theories are in front of us. So we can we can split them in two, in two planets. One would be the outside potential actors. And oh boy, the Iran regime has so many enemies. Actually, it is the enemy of so many foreign actors. It is in open war 
with the Arab coalition, you know, their militias are lobbing missiles on Riyadh and uh, other Arab countries. It is an, an active intelligence war with Israel. It's not a secret. It's not the first scientist who is taken out, but I'm not concluding yet. It has been on an aggressive mode against the United States, but that didn't go well at the beginning of this year with Qasem Soleimani. It has a significant ferocious war with its own opposition, both inside the country and also outside the country. There is now, a, as we all know, a court sessions for the trial of a team of Iranian uh, operatives in Brussels who had planned the bombing of a conference of the opposition in Paris, you remember, in 2018. I was there. Newt Gingrich was there, many leaders uh, from Congress, Democrat and Republicans. So if you want to look at the uh, motive, well, Iran has a lot of enemies because it's the enemy of so uh, many people. But at the same time, as we just uh, discussed, and that reminds me a little bit of another country, not that big, but controlled by Iran, Lebanon, where uh, in 2005, there was the assassination of Rafiq Hariri, the former prime minister who was an ally of Hezbollah at one point. But then they wanted to get rid of him because he wanted to play a different role because the timing, and here I go back, Lisa, to what you said, the key word is that there is a timing. So going back to Iran, what are the most important timings that we are seeing in front of us? And you actually answered what could be the beginning of my analysis, it's Biden. It has to do with the time between that assassination and the potential, I'm, I'm still on, on theory saying the potential formation of a Biden administration and, and, and takeover of the White House January the 20th. Now, who are the potential parties interested in making sure a change will happen uh, in Iran or in some of the equations before the Biden administration, uh, pick uh, your uh, your option here. But one of the options would be, and that's really, you need to have a Levantine mind to, to be able to get to the point. The Iran regime is ready to go back to negotiate a return of the United States to the Iran deal, okay? To do so, they need to sacrifice few things to say, well, now we're going to go on a new path. Now we're going to go on a new path. Some people in Iran knows a lot of information about the nuclear uh, program and etc. Well, take it as one of the possibilities. I don't have any evidence, but since you took us into the Levantine mind, the way these things are, are done, this is one very plausible possibility that they took him out because they are preparing to go back to the Iran deal. And therefore, this is not a person that they would want to be witnessing as to the real span of that program. Now, uh, uh, Dr. Ferris, you wrote an entire book, The Choice, um, yeah. comparing the foreign policies of Trump and, and Biden, basically, because, you know, he, he was vice president for so long, it's easy to speculate what we're going to go back to. I mean, if, if this, if just the foreign policy um, of between the two administrations deserves a book on its own, and yeah. Iran being probably the bulk of dealing with, you know, in terms of, of the foreign policy umbrella, why are both the Biden administration and the mullahs in Iran nervous about what happened, about this assassination? How will it different put, uh, put these two players in a different position than we were three weeks ago with regards to getting back to the negotiating table? Well, we heard many voices, advisors to the Biden team, which in fact will become an administration a few weeks from now. Uh, making very strong statements, including former CIA director John Brennan, who said this is a, an act of terrorism. Whomever did that is an act of terrorism. Mm -hmm. Because they are concerned that such an action, as they were concerned actually at the begin beginning of the year with the elimination of Soleimani, they argue that since they want to go back to the Iran deal, and give me after that 30 seconds to explain why are they going so strongly back to the Iran deal. Since they want to go back to the Iran deal, they assume that any action against the Iran regime is going to convince the Iran regime that they don't want to go back anymore to the Iran deal. And so somebody is, somebody is losing something. And I made the case in my book that the Obama administration, when they conceived that Iran deal with the Iranian regime and the Europeans, it's not just about the nuclear. What is really 
it's like almost um, Star Wars, what is behind this whole thing is a financial deal. $150 billion going to the coffers of the Iran regime. God knows what the Iran regime can do with that money in addition to buying weapons, but in terms of that transaction. But dozens of huge financial entities were scheduled to move into the Iran regime markets. So the fact that the Biden team wants to go back so strongly, so quickly, it's not just it's ideological. They have been pounding on their doors by those special interests. Hey, we want to go back to the Iran deal. So they were very concerned about this elimination because they thought that this could uh, destabilize the path back to the Mm -hmm. Iran deal. Right. Um, Mr. Kian, I want to come back to you. Uh, You put your finger on something extremely important, and that would be um, a a really constructive conversation uh, about the current situation in Iran, the vulnerabilities, the opposition, uh, and what this could mean for the future of Iran. So we had this assassination. Obviously, you know, in the next weeks, um, there will be major crackdowns. People who are innocent and may be guilty of espionage will be uh, rightfully or wrongfully accused as such. Um, While the mullahs uh, panic and scramble to figure out how this happened. But the bottom line, which Mr. Kian, you pointed to was that this is a huge embarrassment for the regime. This is a huge embarrassment because it showed the vulnerabilities um, and it pointed to the fact that they had their guards down. Even though we have all this chest thumping from the Iranian regime day in and day out, they had their guard down. They had their number one guy. You couldn't find a picture of this guy anywhere. And all of a sudden he's, he's taken out in the, in, in the middle of, of the city. Um, what does this mean for the opposition? I mean, how can they take advantage of this vulnerability? Uh, what does it mean for the people of Iran? And what are you hearing? I mean, what has been the internal conversation surrounding the, the assassination of Fahrizadeh? Well, you know, the internal conversations on social media is what we get, is that this was an inside job, without a doubt. You know, the preponderance of views inside Iran is that the Islamic Republic has now entered a stage where the revolution is going to eat its own children. And that's exactly what's happening uh, in in Iran. This is not the first time. The judiciary is really an instrument uh, in the country that has to be allied with one of the factions and uh, compete with others. So you have an activism in the judiciary system in Iran that uh, is really uh, an interesting an interesting area to watch on its own. Uh, you see all these uh, all these uh, proceedings, legal proceedings set up on empty accusations about people uh, about you know major major embezzlements to the billions of dollars, billions of euros with a bunch of people who have nothing to do with anything. They're named as defendants. There is a, uh, a trial, and then uh, you never know who really was uh, at, at fault because there is no independent judiciary in, in Iran. So you ask about the opposition and what the opposition can do. I hope you are referring to the opposition inside Iran mm-hmm. uh, because that's, that's an area that I can address. Opposition inside Iran is just gaining momentum to understand the regime. You know, one thing is very clear to me is that no one, no one outside of Iran understands what goes on inside Iran better than the Iranian people who are fighting this this terrorist tyrant regime every day on the streets of Tehran. I mean, they're giving their lives. They're putting their lives in the palm of their hands and going to fight the tyranny. They know exactly how to fight the regime. And uh, as the regime gets weaker and weaker from within, without even foreign influence, uh, it's it's going to become easier for the people of Iran to finally rise and say, either by negotiations with the government or through other means, uh, change the government in a form of government that they seek, a democratic, secular form of government. That's what we hear from inside Iran, from the opposition. But let me just uh, let me just address that uh, sometimes events take uh, a, a course on their own. You know, I remember uh, a a Mr. Ceausescu, uh, who was uh, you know a tyrant and dictator, and everything was going fine for him. 
Uh, he was giving a speech on the balcony of his palace, and all of a sudden, one person out of that crowd called him, you're a liar. And that's <laughs> it. That was the triggering event. A few hours later, there was no Mr. Ceausescu. And, uh, of course, you know, I, I will make an assessment of what happened after, whether it was good or bad. But uh, that's, that's a reality also. So these things are not to be calculated or planned. They take uh, sometimes a course of their own based on the natural events that take place. Uh, you know, there are rumors that Khamenei is dead. Uh, there's been, it's not the first time that that rumor gets uh, uh, yeah. spread. But I'll ask the timing question on that one as well. Um, I'm not sure if the theory of the sacrificial lamb, uh, while it could be true, it could be, absolutely. Uh, but, you know, ask yourself this question. If you were the Islamic Republic, one of the factions, and you wanted to kill somebody to eliminate that person, it was competition uh, for you or for your family or for your business or military unit, what timing would you pick? Wouldn't you pick a time that all fingers would be pointed to, oh, okay, this must be an Israeli operation, or this must be an American operation, or uh, this must be this must be related to the American election, so that no one can actually point the finger to the Islamic Republic itself as being a key element of this assassination, or even the ones before that. Right. Uh, it's 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 something important to keep in mind that, you know, uh, Islamic Republic is not alone. They have very experienced former KGB helping them from Moscow and in Tehran. They have a lot of, you know, experts in intelligence. Uh, and they also have a false operational competence uh, that I believe comes from a mixture of ideological beliefs uh, that, that, you know, is used as a tool. It's not real, of course. It's just used as a tool to... Uh, put themselves to sleep at night comfortable mm. that they have some divine intervention is going to come in and save them from uh, going uh, going out of business. The Islamic Republic is destined to go out of business. Uh, I think Glenn Kodorovsky at the State Department said it, that it's going to be thrown into the dustbin of history very soon. When? We don't know, but it's going to happen. We'll, we'll have you back when it does, for sure. Um, but next, I, I actually want to show you guys something wonderful. Uh, maybe you've seen it today, uh, whirling around on social media. Um, Mr. Producer, can we show this photo? This is a, um, a sign. It says, thank you, Mossad, with an Israeli flag oh. hanging over a uh, highway sign in, uh, in, I think, just the suburb of, of Tehran. Um, just tremendous, just tremendous. Um, meanwhile, meanwhile, uh, for those of you who have been living uh, on Twitter or in the, in the, the news world, I should say, um, you've been tortured by headlines um, by people like Ben Rhodes, the Atlantic Council, op-eds in the New York Times, the Washington Times saying, why did they take out this guy? You know, as if he's some sort of martyr and we have to sit here and, you know, really um, question our moral compasses as to why such a noble, upstanding gentleman was killed. And it really makes you wonder, are we living in two different universes here where we've come to a time that because people don't support the president or are anti-Israel, that they would actually sit back and wonder if a terrorist is good or bad and if his killing is good or bad. In Iran, which, you know, people would say that they, you know, it's not such a pro-Israel environment, Things have come to a place and a time where they have, you know, thank you, Israel, thank you, Mossad, uh, hanging off of, of a highway sign like that. Dr. Please, Ferris, uh, you know, oh, please, oh, I, I want both of you to address this because I think this is, this is truly, it's, it's incredible to see these faux intellects. And I call them that because it's, it's, it's crazy what they're doing to the analysis over this story. Dr. Ferris, please. Well, there are at least two reasons for why these uh, ex-officials, eventually new officials again, of the Obama-Biden-Biden-Obama administration uh, are making those statements. 
you know, reason number one I just mentioned is that they are part of what I call the architecture of the Iran deal, which is a reflection of a lot of interests between that started actually in 2009 when former President Obama sent a letter to Khamenei in which he actually started the negotiations that ended in 2015 with the Iran deal. So you have a whole constellation of people. Some would call them, you know, the Iran deal lobby, the people who support it. So when that ended, that dream they have ended with Trump, President Trump withdrawal from the Iran deal, they were shocked. And for them, the priority, the mother of all priorities is to go back to that Iran deal because it links that group, that constellation to those huge interests. But there is something else. They live on a planet that actually stopped in 2016, in November of 2016. Mm -hmm. So they don't really realize because they were not in government on the one hand. And second, they were completely obnumulated by, you know, the rise and death of the Iran deal, the first Iran deal. So they didn't realize that on the ground in the Middle East, many things have changed. Things that are so large that I don't know if, I, if they want me to advise them, I don't know how it's going to be possible to go back to where they want to go back. For example, today in the Middle East, you have a vast coalition, the so-called Arab coalition that was started in Riyadh in 2017. that did not exist before. We're talking the Saudis, UAE, Bahrain, mm -hmm. Jordan, Egypt, you know, all these countries. So that's number one. Number two, you have something even crazier that happened in a good sense, the Abraham Accords. Now you have Arab countries, three for now, they may go up to seven or eight, who have signed a peace agreement with Israel. And it's not just about peace, it's about alliance. Mm -hmm. So how is a new team coming from the other planet gonna handle uh, the Arab alliance? How Do they want to actually dismantle it? Do they wanna go and dismantle the Abraham Accord? They simply cannot. Mm -hmm. The American public won't accept it. Plus, the other change, is here in America, you have a, an opposition or you have a group of people. I don't want to make it political by saying 74 million voters of Donald Trump you know, are much more aware than even all his supporters in 2016 about foreign policy, about those two important matters. So that is not something simple, especially if after the uh, election of, in Georgia we're going to have, depending on which Senate we're going to have. But, and I end here, the most important change is what really happened in Iran during the fall of 2019. I mean, Iran witnessed, along with Iraq and Lebanon, huge demonstrations, a whole revolution. And I defer to both of you to discuss that important change that took place inside Iran. So that team that is now completely disconnected from planet one is gonna land on planet two and try to see how they're gonna you know, navigate their way back to an Iran deal that is very difficult to re regather, at least in its first shape at this point in time. Mm -hmm. And Mr. Kian, I want to get your thoughts on on the same uh, point. Yeah, you know, uh, before you showed the uh, the slide that uh, talks about uh, uh, you know being careful about the use of sugar and uh, watching out for cholesterol levels uh, behind on that green banner, and then of course the flag of Israel, Star David, and then thank you Mossad. Um, you know, before you showed that, uh, I would say that there was less reason to believe that this was an inside job. But now that you've mentioned two things, one, the flag and the message, and two, the, uh, what I would, I'm gonna borrow from uh, Ben Rhodes' uh, famous words of uh, the uh, echo chamber. Uh, so those two things, and uh, remember Ben Rhodes, uh, said it himself, he said, uh, you know, we created an echo chamber in the media. We made things up and then had media repeat it and it became, you know, all the facts that people needed to know was that inside that echo chamber. So remember that. Now look at that flag. And I ask you a question, Lisa, and, and Walid knows this more than, more than anyone else, uh, and you do too, that, you know, the streets of Tehran are just covered with cameras. There are so many cameras everywhere that it's impossible to be able to get away. Of course, they let people write graffiti and all of that, but the flag of Israel with a message that says, thank you, Mossad, why? Why now? How did, they, how did that happen? 
I'm, I'm not trying to be, you know, completely paranoid about everything, but, you know, I think if the Islamic Republic is underestimated in these uh, regards of how unintelligent they are, they think the world would buy these little games that they play. Oh, we're going to put a flag of Israel here, and we're just going to look the other way. Somebody's going to put it there, and it's going to say, thank you, Mossad. Then we have some very high-ranking people in the United States saying, this was horrible. This was an act of terrorism. Right. So, uh, you know, I cannot ignore that. Again, I'm not saying this is exactly what happened. I'm saying I cannot ignore right. these as considerations because, mm -hmm. yeah, of course, that's what they want. Uh, and now about the negotiations, uh, uh, I said it some time ago that it's not good for the health of IRGC for anything to get normalized between Washington and Tehran. They lose a lot of economic benefit. You know, Balid is right. There's a lot of financial interest. Just, you know, can't wait to get to Tehran and compete with the Europeans. Uh, I understand that. But there's also a an embedded interest, economic interest, inside the IRGC that controls 60-70% of the economy inside Iran. What would happen to them? What would happen to all of this uh, irregular foreign currency uh, transactions? Uh, you know, the government just raised uh, 300 and, well, the equivalent of $12 billion out of selling bankrupt government, bankrupt government entities stock to people of Iran. Who benefits from all of this? IRGC. So I'm not sure if IRGC is in a hurry to get back to a deal to get things normalized, but I do understand the, uh, the design of, you know, the Biden administration, without a doubt, I agree with what he 100 percent because they're under pressure to get back to the deal. They want to compete with the Europeans. They want to mend some of the relationships that have been affecting the Europeans trade with the Islamic Republic adversely. We've talked about it. Uh, so these realities do exist. And uh, I, I think it's it's probably not a bad idea to keep a skeptical eye on other facts, other factors that uh, that are presenting themselves to us. Of course, we don't know a lot of things, but we do know these things exist. So uh, I think Islamist, Islamic Republic is uh, clumsy. Uh, they're not professional. They have this, uh, you know, the insider circle and the outsider circle. So it's not qualifications that give people jobs, especially in the intelligence and security apparatus. It's like who is related to who? Who's comfortable with them? And look at them. I mean, just listen to them. Uh, I was listening to the former head of the Iranian uh, Atomic Energy Agency, uh, who was, by the way, a competitor of Fakhrizadeh in many respects. And uh, I was just listening to him. And as I listened to him, I said, this guy is a scientist. This guy actually has uh, academic credentials. There's no way. It just... Uh, it's, a, it's an embedded vulnerability. It's an intrinsic fragility inside the system of Islamic Republic. And they're clumsy. They're, they think by doing these things, they, they buy themselves more time. But I don't believe so. Their days are numbered. Speaking of their days being numbered, I want to switch gears here and talk about the latest news coming out of Iran, that over the weekend, uh, Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei um, passed the baton to his son. Um, as uh, you pointed to, Mr. Kian, in, in your first uh, answer, um, this th there's been so many times it's, this has been rumored. I mean, if a cat has nine lives, Ali Khamenei, I mean, is far, far beyond that at this point. There have been so many times that this rumor has circulated and circulated, and he is old and he is sick, so we're all expecting one of these times it will be real. And now that he has abdicated his position, he's passed it along to his son. Dr. Ferris, what does this even mean? Will there be any changes? Um, what, what have you heard about the, the, his health, his, you know, how will this even change any equation going forward for U.S. foreign policy and inside Iran? Let me begin, Lisa, by saying I'll defer to both of you on some of the things I'm gonna visit. And then 
with regard to this issue and then give you my assessment. Uh, from an observation as a historian of the Middle East and how the Iran regime operates, there are some moral, ideological, ethical, uh, you know, historical components that, you know, they want to project onto themselves. Uh, I don't know, but uh, what would be the success of passing the baton to his son in an institution that has many groups that wants to be the decider, the Majlis, for example, or all these other organizations. I mean, it may assume, it may seem to be simple that he will give it to his son and he will run with it. But is the regime prepared for that? Because there are so many other interests, starting from the Pasdara, all the way into the various elements of power within the clerical circles. So maybe his son, if that is true, I have no information about that, would be an interim link until the actual real shadow would come out of the background. Because, I mean, you and I can agree that the issue of post Khamenei is not something that has not been discussed. It has been discussed but and for many, many years. And it's not an assessment. This is information that we have from, you know, intelligence agencies around Iran and from Iran and from Hezbollah. So the matter has been discussed. But what we cannot see is the changing posture of the various entities discussing the matter, meaning you as much as I know that there are multiple centers of power. I mean, remember, this is a um, Islamic Republic that only had two supreme leaders, Khomeini and then Khamenei. We don't have many examples. And Khomeini died before the end of the Cold War has really consumed all these events, before the Arab Spring, before 9-11. So we really have one tradition, which is Khamenei and the elements of power that he has in his own hands. So I would summarize by saying, if the rumor is right that he's passing some of the powers, maybe some signing powers, maybe because if he's going into a weakness stage, he needs one person who could say, well, my dad wants that. <laughs> they want a strong voice that would say it. But I would not, I would not assume that a son would play the role of a long-term next or the uh, post Khamenei uh, leadership for all the reasons that I have mentioned, but I'll I'll defer to you. Yeah, um, Mr. Kian, I obviously wanted to ask you this question. I, I actually tweeted that I, I was a very young girl when uh, the news uh, was being shown on the television screen um, that uh, Ayatollah Khomeini died, and I was I was born uh, in the United States, and um, obviously have a very close connection to my roots. And I, I, I was sitting on the ground, a little kid, and I looked at my mom and I said, "Does this mean we're moving to Iran?" I mean, to me, you know, Khomeini's face was the reason why my parents, you know, had decided to remain in the United States and not go back after their studies. It was the reason why, you know, I, I, I had, you know, maybe a close connection to my culture, but not to my country and had never even visited my country. So that's the head. Is it's Khamenei now the tail? Are we getting rid of this monster, Mr. Kian? Well, the process started long time ago. I, I would say this, you know, people can call me uh, an optimist or a person who sees the world the way he wants to see it, but I don't think so. I think the Islamic Republic as an institution was a lie to begin with. It came to power with an act of terror. It came to power with holding uh, 52 Americans hostage and then releasing them on the day of inauguration and uh, through a contract uh, called the Algiers, not the Algiers uh, Agreement, but the Algiers Agreement that actually tied the hands of the United States in its first sentence by saying that the United States will never take an action against the Islamic Republic and so forth. So the vulnerability began with that day, the day it was born, it was born extremely vulnerable to uh, its own demise. That's maybe one of the reasons that 43 years has passed and it's still Islamic Republic remains in its revolutionary posture because it cannot have any confidence about itself. It just I mean, these people don't, don't sleep uh, comfortably at night. And now let's come back to the uh, handing over the baton and so forth. Well, you know, with the power structure, the way it is, Mushtaba Khamenei uh, is no one respected by anyone in the power structures anywhere. What this means is the following. Some time ago, Khamenei himself said that it's time to pass the baton 
to the younger generation. And uh, they say that uh, there's a young uh, minister of communications, his name is Jaromi. They say that uh, he, he was, uh, he was kind of thinking about maybe it's my time to become the president of the country or something. And people quickly told him not to get too excited. Don't worry about it. He's not yeah. talking about you. He's talking about somebody else. Now, what is apparent is that Mochtaba, uh, Khamenei's son, who is being uh, discussed as the person who the baton is passed over to, uh, was overseeing, actually. He was the, uh, the ultimate power over the intelligence for the IRGC. There, there are different organs within the intelligence apparatus, security apparatus, of Islamic Republic, and there's competition amongst them. There's a Ministry of Information, which uh, is a constant battle with the intelligence unit of the uh, of the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guard. Inside the IRGC, there are various intelligence units that compete with each other, and that is created intentionally to balance the power and spread the concentration of knowledge and information but because of systemic flaws in the system, it's not need to know that is the basis for sharing intelligence. It's who knows who rather than who needs to know what. So Mojtaba has enormous influence over the intelligence operations inside the IRGC. His alliance is with the armed forces through the, uh, through the uh, intelligence unit. But we must not forget that the real power is with the protectors, not Mojtaba, not Khamenei. Everything changed in 2009. Up until that point, there was a, an exchange taking place where Khamenei was buying security and paying for it with legitimacy. Yeah, so, can you explain, explain who the protectors are for those who may yeah. not know? Yeah, the protectors of the system are those within the IRGC, not all of them, because many of them are dissatisfied, and the inside the threat I was referring to comes from them, mainly must come from them. They're the dissatisfied. They're the ones who are the first line of suspects when it comes to assessing inside the threat in, in the subject of assessing that vulnerability. So um, the protectors are the IRGC, the paramilitary uh, units of Basij, uh, these, are, these are young people who with minimal training, their, their only training is take a baton and beat up some woman in the street if uh, she's causing trouble, and that's what they do. Uh, so these are the protectors of the, of the regime, and of course this is the first layer of the protectors. The backup, as Walid said, comes from Lebanon, it comes from Hamas, and who knows, from any other place they have this program for education of the clerics in other countries which is a hugely funded oh by the way their 1400 which is the coming year budget was approved where the budget for these uh for these units were just increased tremendously some were doubled some were tripled so uh when you when you look at the protectors look at the ones who get paid to protect so in 2009 with the uprising what happened was the supreme leader was supposed to stay above the fray, not align itself with any of the fighting uh, uh, forces in there. But he said, my views are closer to Ahmadinejad's views. In mm -hmm. other words, he declared his support for one side, which basically stripped him of all the powers of dispensing legitimacy. He had no legitimacy to give out anymore. From that point on, IRGC walked up to him and said, sir, We've been providing you security and in exchange, you've been giving us legitimacy. You no longer have any legitimacy. How would you like to pay us? And Khamenei would have said, I wasn't there, I don't know, but I, if I were to guess, I would say Khamenei would have said, what do you want? And the answer from IRGC would have been everything. And we saw that. A, mm -hmm. a IRGC guardsman became the head of the oil, co oil company and oil revenues, the... Yeah. The, the purse uh, of the Islamic Republic was placed in the hands of the IRGC. And IRGC rules the country, runs the country, does everything in that country. And the most sensitive unit within, within IRGC, the heart of IRGC, is in the intelligence unit controlled by Mojtaba Khamenei. And of course, two other individuals, uh, two other individuals in the you know, house of the leader, 
who also control all matters with respect to security and intelligence. But it's really they're there to carry water for Mojtaba Khamenei. They're there to carry his orders. They're not the deciders, as, as Malid called them. They're not decision makers. They actually execute Mojtaba's orders. So, in a way, Mojtaba Khamenei, since 2009, in a growing fashion, has been leading things and making things happen in the country. And it's natural uh, for, for, uh, for him to take over. However, what I'm not sure is how much of it, how much of it was forced on Khamenei to do that because Khamenei's time has expired. He lost legitimacy a long time ago. You, you, you hear it. You hear it on the streets. Death to Khamenei every day. Every mm -hmm. day you hear that. There's no hesitation on that. So it's not a secret that he's lost his legitimacy. What I'm not sure is did IRGC go to Khamenei and said, uh, sir, excuse me, it's time for you to go rest a little bit and enjoy your caviar and ride your horses uh, and give the power to your son? Or Khamenei said, well, I'm tired and the young people need to take over and so forth. I tend to believe the former and less of the latter. You know, uh, your assessment of... Um, these very, very important details should be, you know, should be heard by the mainstream media, uh, yeah. who blames, you know, the um, the lack of uh, COVID care and uh, ventilators on on sanctions when they just upped the budget for the uh, mullahs, butchers, and their, you know, protectors, as you call well, them. Well, listen, forget, forget about that. You know, flood has destroyed homes and belongings oh, of a absolutely. very large segment of the population. They're crying. You know, my heart breaks when I look at these videos okay. and then I look at the numbers. Yeah, people oh. should understand. People should understand that is it is the leadership that is creating this reality for the people and not the sanctions um, that are extremely targeted. And, um, you know, uh, Dr. Ferris, I want to go to you because, you know, we talked about the uh, support coming from Hezbollah, coming from Hamas, coming um, from, from Lebanon. Well, those places are suffering financially, right? Yeah. Aren't, aren't there little money boxes, little charity boxes for Hezbollah in Lebanese uh, supermarkets? When, when will this catch up with the regime? When will they be starved to the point where they can't be paying out this kind of money to the Basiji uh, thugs on the street? Well, the Iran regime for decades uh, has been funding um, Hezbollah on the one hand and then Hamas on the other hand. But over the decades, Hezbollah, more than Hamas, has established its own sources of funding. I mean, Hassan Nasrallah goes on TV and say every, uh, you know, financial aid that we need is coming from Iran. But that's for the propaganda. In reality, remember, that Hezbollah has been in control of Lebanon nonstop since 1990. And again, since 2000, when Israel withdrew from the South, Hezbollah controls the various ministries of Lebanon in the same way the Pazdaran Basij control the ministries and the institution in Iran. It's a small Iran after all, but there is beyond that. Hezbollah has been able to develop thanks to the type of society Lebanon has overseas, the emigre. Lebanon has about 15 million diaspora people in 32 countries around the world, including in the United States, Latin America, Australia, Canada. So Hezbollah over the past 20 years has been penetrating these communities. Majority of these communities, such as in Venezuela or in Brazil, they don't like Hezbollah. But what Hezbollah does is to penetrate and threaten them that their villages, their houses, their families in Lebanon will pay a price if there's no uh, protection and shielding. This is why the United States for the last, I think, 10 to 15 years has been very, very active in trying to counter Hezbollah in Latin America, in West Africa, in parts of Asia. So Hezbollah has its own empire of money. Hamas receives directly from uh, Iran, also from Hezbollah, and somehow uh, Hamas finds itself in a position to get money from the Muslim Brotherhood at the same time. I mean, that's a case by itself. They are in the intersection between uh, Hezbollah and the, uh, between Iran and the Muslim Brotherhood. So when Iran needs Hezbollah to accomplish or to execute a task, then they can ask them, 
you know, because they're ready and they have no responsibility over them. Uh, if Iran wants to help Hugo Chavez, if you remember, there were huge demonstrations in Venezuela. They called on Hezbollah elements. Some of them are present in Caracas. They have headquarters in downtown Caracas. Because if aliens or people who are foreigners are attacking the opposition of, uh, you know, of Hugo, Hugo Chavez and Maduro, of course, then there will be no responsibility. We were told also that Hezbollah has been seen in uh, Ahwaz, uh, where there were demonstrations against, uh, because they speak Arabic, so the Iran regime called on Hezbollah to send its Arabic speakers inside Iran to suppress the opposition, mostly Arab ethnic uh, people. So it is a interaction, interreaction, if you want, between Iran regime and the small Iran militias that they have created across the board. And let's not forget to end here, that there is a, an entire Hezbollah deployed in Iraq. It's called Hezbollah Iraq with the other militias. So we're not just talking about the Iran regime as you know the Third Reich type. They do have provinces around uh, the region and they use their capacities as well. No, and um, last question, I want both of you to, to give your opinions on this. This is more of an observation from, from where I sit and um, I'm sure this is on your minds every day as well. If we take the temperature of the Middle East at the end of the Trump era, um, which is coming right up, we look at how far that needle point has come, how, how much the, the, both the, the quality, the, the way that which the young people can express themselves. And uh, Walid and I, I think when you were on my podcast, we call this the real Arab Spring, yeah. where people of the region are able to really have their voices heard. And when we talk about the Arab Spring, we start from 2010, but we forget that the real Arab Spring, but they're not Arabs, but the real momentum of the region began in 2009 with the Green Revolution in Iran. Wow. And the reason I bring this all up is to follow this trajectory of the young people of the region is to follow their desires and the evolution of their desires and where they've come. The reason why I believe that someone would put that Israeli flag over a highway, why do I, someone like myself who's, who has seen it all and I know that they're, the mullahs are capable of everything, is because I know that the people of Iran, they, they join these Instagram groups where Iran and Israel unite. They want to go to that wrestling match where they, where they can meet the Israeli. They want to sit at a chess game across from an Israeli. And that is more of the barometer of how far the region has come and how far the Iranians have come. Now, the question will be uh, to both of you, um, what does this mean? In the, in, let's, let's just put the whole uh, tablescape down, right? So we have an incoming Biden administration that wants this, this deal so badly. They will shut out reality. They will shut out the Iranian people uh, to, again, very, very um, delicately put glue back together all these cracks and broken pieces of reality uh, and to say that this is, this is what they want. They want the deal because that's what's going to be best for the people of Iran. The people of Iran don't buy that anymore. They know what's true. And now they have many, many, many millions of allies in the region. Uh, all those young people who tell them you can do it because we did it. And now we are going to vacation in Tel Aviv and we're going to vacation in Dubai, vice versa. Um, what does this mean for the region as a whole as we approach the Biden um, presidency? And what will it take for the, the people, the young people of Iran to have their voices heard just like their neighbors? And Mr. Kian, we'll start with you and Dr. Ferris will have you finish off the program. Well, I think, I think, Lisa, you put your finger in the very, very correct place in the beginning of the program when you, when you talked about, uh, you know, the danger of being stuck. And Walid, of course, elaborated on this uh, very elegantly. The danger is to be stuck in the world of the past and try and figure out the road ahead. If the Biden administration, I mean, I can sit here and, and uh, you know, say that the Biden administration will do this or will do that. But let me just say what serves the best interest of the United States. What serves the best interest of the United States is to make a deal with the people of the future, not the people of the past. And the Biden administration is well advised to, and I'm sure, I'm sure very capable people in his administration will be thinking about these realities. But I just hope that short-term interests don't distract them. I would say to the Biden administration, make a deal. 
with the people of Iran, not mm -hmm. the government of Islamic mm -hmm. Republic. That's the wrong entity. If you make a deal with the Islamic Republic of Iran, be ready to be confronted by the protest now, this time against the United States for making a deal with the devil. People of Iran are the future of the relationship between the United States people and Iranians. Don't mess it up. Make a deal with the Iranian people. Stay on their side. You are making a deal with a broken, almost bankrupt, corrupt, porous, weak system. Why? Why do you want to make a deal? Why would you be so eager to make a deal with such a vulnerable counterparty that's not going to be there in the near future? And that I say with confidence. I know Mr. Ben Rose will disagree with me vehemently, and he would use his echo chamber to say otherwise. But there are all sorts of indicators that will prove, prove Mr. Ben Rose and others that no, the system is here to stay, and we have no choice by negotiating with the power in charge, not the power to come. I would say that's the future. You're right. The Israelis, Iranians will be friends regardless because the under 40 youth of Iran is already friends with the youth in Israel. They're already in touch. They're already talking. Nobody can control that. We are in the information age. The Middle East, as Walid said it so elegantly, has changed. The Biden administration will be well advised to look into the future as opposed to looking into the past. Very, very well said. Dr. Ferris. Well, Bejan uh, has really summarized not just my thoughts, but actually the essence of my American life for the mm. last 30 years. This week, it's the 30th year of my immigration to the United States since 1990. I'm a 30-year-old young American now. Uh, it's, it was all about a message uh, from people like myself and others who were born in the region, came here, after the collapse of the Soviet Union to inform the American public that essentially these civil societies in the region, especially after you know the end of the Cold War and the beginning of technology, especially after 2000, uh, 2000 2001, so these are the partners that the Americans that we are living with should be with. It doesn't matter if it's Republican or, or, or Democrats. Unfortunately, unfortunately, the establishment here, the establishment, it's way beyond a president. It's actually those who think academia, media, and others did not understand that the region is changing and that we have to change to meet that region. Uh, unfortunately, when the Green Revolution exploded in 2009, we all remember, we went in the wrong direction. It was there. It could have been solved there. Uh, that they advised then, the Obama administration, very fresh, decided to go in a different direction, the Iran deal. Then you had the whole Arab Spring that you and I have been discussing for so long. Uh, unfortunately then, the administration went ahead and spoke with the Muslim Brotherhood instead of the youth of civil societies uh, everywhere. And again came the opportunity with President Trump. President Trump did one thing. He stopped the Iranian explosion in the region in the sense he deterred them. But one thing even the Trump administration was not able to do is to engage the Iranian people. I was waiting for the last four years for this administration. Probably we will know later in history, we don't know that maybe the second term, a second term of a Trump administration may have opened the path. Well, I propose that the, if there is a Biden administration, they should be the one to change their own policy from the past. Take the advantage created by the Trump administration and run, as my good friend Bijan has said, into the future and meeting with those partners who are ready. You know what's happening between the youth in the Emirates and Israel and Bahrain and how people in Baghdad and in Beirut are crying, why not us and people in Egypt? The region is rushing towards peace, is rushing towards the future. I hope the next administration is not gonna make another strategic mistake. Well, from both of your mouths to their ears, I hope that that is the case, as it will be better for the region as a whole, for the national security of the uh, global community and everyone. And I thank you both. I, I failed to mention at the beginning of the program, we brought these two back uh, based on popular demand. I got so many texts and emails Good. that they love this. You both are, are wonderful. And more than that, you bring Very humble. Very humble. You bring your brilliance. 
No, no, you bring your brilliance to a place that people can understand in the comfort of their homes. And uh, I thank you. I thank you for joining me again. And I thank all of you for tuning in. And we hope to see you next time. It's a pleasure to be with you, Lisa. And happy holidays to all. To all of you. Happy holidays.